the book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 7 this morning. Hebrews chapter 7. Also, want to just tell you at the onset that I bring greetings and love from Southeast Asia. And so, if you know what I'm talking about, you'll be blessed to hear that. Uh, it was a good, uh, we had a great time, Sarah and I did, while visiting some friends. And, uh, but we're also just glad to be home. Uh, I want to just also just, and at the beginning, just mention this to you. This is one of my favorite times of the year. It's most, uh, one of the most wonderful times of the year, right? If that doesn't sound too cliche, but it is past Thanksgiving, so I can say things like that. Um, but I want to ask you to consider in this time uh, of Advent to consider the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. This is something that Sarah and I look forward to every year. It's something that we, we set aside money every single month uh, to give sacrificially to this. And I would love to see our church meet our goal of $2,500 and maybe even to exceed that. And so if you haven't already begun talking about that with your spouse or, or with whoever would be involved or with yourself, don't, don't argue with yourself. Uh, but if you, if you haven't already begun thinking and just praying about what God would have you to give, I would encourage you to do that. It will be a blessing as we could uh, really make a, a continue to just be a, a support and an arm of encouragement to those who are on the field, um, even as we speak, and many of those whom we, we know and love. And so if you've got your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to read chapter, uh, chapter 7, verses 11 through 28. And so if you want to just follow along with me, it'll be on the screen for you this morning as well. Um, also, maybe in your copy of God's Word. So chapter 7, verse number 11, this is what the Word of God says. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar." For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priest. And this comes even more evident, becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath. And by the one who, who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, You are a priest forever. And this makes Jesus the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did not once, or since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. 
May God bless the reading of his word. Again, would you pray with me? God, we are thankful for your word this morning. So we look to it for hope. God, you have, from the beginning, spoken into creation, and we're thankful for that. And even now, you've spoken uh, in this time through your Son. So as we consider his life, as we consider this morning his birth, may we be encouraged. May we be corrected. Father, those who are far from you, may they be drawn near to you this morning. And ultimately, as a result of us looking at this text this morning, may we draw near to you through your son, this high priest, as we peer into the nativity, may we, may we draw near through the Son. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. The main point for, the, for this morning is this, if you're taking notes, that Jesus is the only one able to intercede perfectly and perpetually as our high priest. That Jesus is the only one able to intercede perfectly and perpetually as our high priest. We are to draw near to God the Father through him. This is the main point of the text this morning. So yes, we're in the Advent season, and so you might say, well, why are we talking about the high priest? The fact that Jesus Christ, born in a manger, was born as a sacrifice, born to die for the sins of many. As we look at this text this morning, I believe we'll see the answer to three questions, and so I'll ask them right now. The first is this, who is able to save? Who is able to save? Many of you know the answer to this question. But even though you do, I think it's, it's, it's helpful for us to review. Who is able to save? Nowadays, we look around and we think, well, what can save us? We, 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 we're drawing for straws, many of us. Society, we know is. And what can save? Can finances? Can relationships who is able to save? What is able to save? Second question we'll look at this morning that we'll see answered ultimately really in verse 25 and then we'll consider the greater context. But how is this one who is to save, how is he so successful? What makes him successful in this business of saving? And lastly, we'll answer this question. We'll see this question answered. Who does he save? Who does he save? So who is able to save? How is he so successful? And who does he save? Before we dive in, I think it'd be best if we look at this role of, what a pre, of the priest in Judaism, as well as the sacrificial system there in Judaism. And so year after year, faithful believers would make their way, along with their family, to Jerusalem. The head of the household leading the way, they would head up to Jerusalem and they would there offer sacrifices on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, year after year, would make a, a sacrifice on behalf of the people. But the father, he would place his hand on, on the head of the animal. He would then give it to the priest. As he removed his hands, the priest would plunge the knife into that animal. Perhaps the prize animal of your very herd. And then that animal would be consumed on the altar, and you would know that though that animal had not sinned, though it had done nothing wrong, it would die, and because of your sins. And you'd witness the atonement being, being made visible in an effort to make you at peace with God, in an effort to fellowship with you and God to be restored. The role of the priest every year was to make sacrifices on behalf of the people, 
Your role would have been to secure that animal that met that standard of purity, and the role of the priest would be to sacrifice that animal. This, is the, this would happen yearly. And as Christians, we don't sacrifice anymore. We're not lacking a high priest, and that's good news. We're not looking for a pure sacrifice either. The question I, I want to ask, and, and I think these, uh, this passage addresses this morning, is why? Why are we not lacking a high priest anymore? We don't, we don't have, have a need to search for one. We have not put out wanted ads for a high priest. Why? Why are we not looking for a pure sacrifice any longer? Again, I think the text will answer this this morning. So the first question, who is able to save? If you look at verse 25, the first couple words in there, the first sentence or phrase, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. It's obvious to me, and I'm sure it is to you this morning, that this he, that the he that is able to save is Jesus Christ himself. Let's talk about, let's talk about the qualifications and what it's actually saying about him. First, look at this word able. Able, able means to have an intrinsic or inherent, inherent ability to achieve something. An intrinsic or inherent ability to achieve something. The ability to get things done. Uh, The present tense means that he is continually able to achieve. So this Jesus Christ is able to achieve something. He's able to accomplish something unwaveringly and unending. Continually, he's able to achieve something. If you were to tell me this morning that, that you're able to lift this podium, if you could say to me, Pastor Josh, I can lift this podium, then you'd be telling me that at any point in time, you could lift this podium if I were to ask you to do it. I'm not going to ask anybody to do that this morning, but I'm sure some of you could say, hey, I'm able to lift that. I, I possess the ability to do that. So in order to be successful at something, you have to have a goal. If you say, I'm able, able to do what? Able to lift the podium? Able to drive a car? Able to, to eat a Big Mac? What, what are you able to do? What is Jesus able to do? Jesus is able to save. He's, he has the inherent ability to achieve salvation. This word for save, it means simply to save, to preserve from harm, to even rescue. And the word in the Greek is sometimes used of physical deliverance from danger or death. It's also used in the, in the New Testament to, to refer to physical healing from sickness, to save somebody from sickness. It's also used to, 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 of deliverance from demonic oppression or possession even in the New Testament. But, but more often than not, when you see that word save, it's referring to salvation in a spiritual sense. The first time we see it in the New Testament is in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew records the angel's conversation with Joseph, and he's found out that his betrothed is now with child. That's a mystery all in itself, and that's definitely sent him for a loop here. But the angel says in, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, She, speaking of Mary, will bear a son, and, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So this Jesus is inherently able to achieve salvation from sin for his people. That's what the Bible says about him here this morning. I want you to think about, when you think about this word salvation, I want you to think of it as as a spectrum in tenses. 
And so for us Christians, if you're taking notes, this is going to be helpful. Um, if, you're, if, you're, if, if you're a Christian here this morning, salvation comes to us in three tenses. So past, present, and future. The, the past aspect of salvation that, that Jesus offers to those who, uh, who are his people, who place their faith in him. In the past tense, we are rescued. We're saved from the guilt of sin. And this happens at the cross. We're saved from the guilt of sin. Many of you recognize in what this word guilt means. This phrase, guilt of sin, you've experienced that. Even this morning, you, perhaps you've sensed the weight of the guilt of sin in your life. If you're a Christian this morning, as we look to the cross, we are saved. We're rescued from that guilt. Because in Christ, we have been justified. So in the past sense of salvation, we receive freedom from guilt of sin, rescued from the guilt of sin. And in the present, we have received a power or salvation over the power of sin, salvation from the power of sin. Even now, for those who are in Christ, who are experiencing the salvation of Christ, we are saved from the very power of sin. And though we, it is present in our life and prevalent in our culture, it doesn't have power over us. And so at one point in, in time, we were slaves to sin. We had no choice but to sin. But in the present, we have been saved by Jesus Christ from the very power of sin. And this occurs at the throne. Even now, Jesus is alive. And he makes intercession for us. And his power is in us. To defeat sin. That's in the present. And there's a third sense of, of, of salvation as we think of time, and that's the future sense. Ultimately, one day we will be saved from the very presence of sin. Which is to say there will be no temptation any longer. There will be no option to sin. And this occurs at the second coming. At one point in time, all those who are Christ will be gathered together with him and be free from the very presence of sin. And doesn't that sound wonderful, church? As we consider the, the, the struggles that we've had, each and every one of us, even this week, temptations on the left, struggles on the right, slipping and falling into sin, choosing it willingly even, to know that one day we will be free from the very presence of sin. Not to see it, or to taste it any longer. This is Jesus Christ. As we look into the manger this morning, we see that Jesus, this, this young child, he has come to save his people from their sins, past, present, and future, in every aspect of not just the, the, the use of the term here, save, the tense and the, the, the form that it is, it actually shows us that he's continually saving as well. That it's not just a one-time action, but that it's a continual action. It's, it's not just good for one time, point in time, but from this point and onward, it's good. And it's daily, he's keeping us from sin, safe and sound. And he's rescuing us from dangerous situations. And he's restoring us to health, spiritually speaking. The guilt of sin is removed forever. It's gone for a Christian. And the power of sin is broken forever in the life of a Christian. And one day we will be free from the presence of sin. It will be gone forever. 
Another way to say that is that he accomplishes his goal to the uttermost, and that's what the Bible says. He saves them to the uttermost. Notice it doesn't say he saves them from the uttermost. It's he saves them to the uttermost. Wow, Christ Jesus' work on the cross, that salvation that he's speaking of here, while it does save us from the uttermost, and there's nobody too far from God's reach, that's not what it's emphasizing here. It's saying it saves us to the uttermost. From this point onward, there's no place and time that we can and we we will not be saved. He accomplishes his goal to the uttermost. The, the evangelist Billy Sunday, he had one way, he had a sermon where he said this, he, that God saved from the guttermost to the uttermost. He was a drunk. And yet he was, he was far from God and, and many thought he would never come to Christ. And yet he, God saved him from the guttermost to the uttermost. This ever-living high priest is able to save to the uttermost at all times, in all cases, and on every occasion he can save. So who is he able to save? Or who is able to save, rather? Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus and Jesus alone. He is the only one able to intercede perfectly and permanently as a high priest. And so again, as we peer into that manger scene, we don't just see a baby, we see a high priest who is able to save his people from their sins. The next question I think this passage answers for us is is this this question. How is he so successful? How is Jesus so successful in his work of high priestly duties? Why is Jesus the only one? And why don't other priests still perform sacrifices for us even this morning? Look again at verse 25. It's mainly where we'll be again this morning. There in verse 25, and we'll, we'll jump out to the greater context here. It says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives and makes intercession for them. And so how is he so successful? Well, there's two uh, key words in verse 25, and that's consequently and since. Consequently and since. And both of these, they, they, they point us to information that had been given prior and so let's find out what, what these, why is he so successful? Well, consequently, in sense, let's look to what this is pointing to. And so in verse 22, it says this, This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So why is he so successful? Because he is the guarantor of a better covenant. Jesus is contrasted here in this chapter as a better high priest than Aaron. And that any high priest that followed in Aaron's line, he is a better high priest, and he is a better high priest of a better covenant. You see, it's a new covenant that Jesus is mediating. It's a new covenant that Jesus is the high priest over. And it's not so much that the priests of of Aaron's order were lacking. It's not that they were failing necessarily at what they were trying to do. That's not the argument here. That's not what uh, the author here is trying to, to, to get across to us. The point is that Aaron's priesthood, that Levitical priesthood, was not designed to accomplish all that God had planned in the new covenant. You see, they did their job. They weren't to accomplish everything. The the Holy Spirit, through this passage, he's, he's saying that the old covenant priests, by design, they're not intended to be the climax of God's work among his people. 
It wasn't the climax. It wasn't the end. They, they weren't intended to be the end-all, be-all. Jesus' ministry was. And we live in that era, Jesus' ministry, experiencing that new covenant. We live in the time of the climax. We, we, we don't live like the Jews did. Looking forward with the, with the Aaronic priest as a picture of, of Christ. No, we, we live in the era of Christ. So what he's saying is, is simple. If, if the old priesthood was capable of, of, of bringing about the kind of, of maturity and assurance that God desires for his people to have, then we wouldn't need Jesus Christ. But that's not the case. The very, the very fact that Jesus has come is a reminder that the old priesthood was just a shadow of the reality to come in the life of Christ. It was just a shadow of things to come. And, and, and you can understand this, but it, it's difficult for us to appreciate certain things if you've always experienced them, if you've always enjoyed them. For instance, uh, someone who grew up in the Depression will appreciate, well, they appreciate everything, right? right? They, I mean, like, they, that's, where we, that's where we get stuff in Walmart bags into more Walmart bags and then putting those and compressing those into more Walmart bags and, and how we, we, we save everything. I mean, that, that's, they appreciate everything because they know what it's like to go without. And so they say things like, waste not, want not. But someone who's never experienced hunger or, 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 who, or who may never have experienced need may say to waste not, want not, okay, boomer. Right? That's, that may be what we say to them. But we've never experienced it, what it would have been like to go years on end, year after year in need, and then experiencing the fulfillment of that. And so now, living in, in light of, of Christ's sacrifice, we may not realize what it would have been like to year after year after year go to the temple and to make sacrifice year after year. We don't know what it's like to experience over and over knowing that your sins need to be forgiven. And we've always looked at the cross and known that our sins had been dealt with and that there's not a need for further sacrifice to be offered. We need to realize that this morning. It's the water that we swim in. It's the air that we breathe. We need to take a moment and, and consider that and thank God for it. And so it's better. Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' work as a high priest is better than Aaron's. But we also know this. Why is, it, why is it so successful? One way is because it's singular. Look at verse 23. It's singular. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And so there's this contrast that the high priests that were in Aaron's line year after year after year, priest after priest after priest, one would die and the next would take his place. But Jesus, in contrast, he holds his priesthood permanently. Why? Because he continues forever. Nobody needs to take his place. They don't ever need to let the seams in and out of that priestly garment because Jesus continues forever as the singular high priest in this covenant. In the old covenant, there were many priests, but in the new covenant, there is only one. And this is why as Protestants, we don't refer to our pastors or our ministers as priests. There's only one priest in the new covenant, 
I don't say that as a slam. There's only one, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. You have one mediator. Hagerstown Church, you need to know this. The pastors here are not your mediators. We're not your priests. We don't bring you to God, as it were. We don't negotiate a a, a treaty. We don't offer a sacrifice. Neither does your spouse and your children and your sweet godly grandmother. She doesn't either. There's only one mediator. There's only one priest in the new covenant, and that is Jesus Christ. So while we should be happy to pray for our spouse as pastors, we're happy to pray for you and in a sense to intercede via prayer, to lift you up to God and be a blessing to you in that way, we do not offer sacrifices for you. That alone is the work of Christ, and it's singular. There's no need for multiple He'll never need one to come in and take his place. He is a priest forever, the Bible says. That goes on to to the next point there. Another reason why Christ's work as a high priest is so successful is because he's permanent. He's permanent. Look at verse 23. It says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So since the first high priest, Aaron, until the time of Jesus, there were, most scholars believe there were about 83 high priests, give or take. 83 high priests from the time of Aaron to the time of Jesus. They're born, they serve, they die, and they're forgotten. They're born, they serve, they die, and they're forgotten. Eighty-three of them. That's an intentional weakness. As you, as you, as you think about that, you think, well, well if, if Jesus is, uh, is better as a priest because he's permanent, why didn't God just make the Aaronic priesthood? Why didn't he make them permanent? Why, why didn't just Aaron serve as a priest? This is intentional. God wasn't like looking back and saying, oh, that went better in my head. Oops, I, I didn't mean, I, that would have been a better thing, and now Jesus is fixing that. No, no. It, one of the purposes of the Aaronic priesthood was to point forward to the real work of priesthood that Jesus Christ was going to do. The book of Hebrews emphasizes that, that Jesus is the better high priest, and that he has no end. He has no end. And tied to this permanence we find there, is that word always that we find in verse 24, or actually in 25. He always lives. That his life is static. It's unchanging. It's unchanging in ability. The fact that Jesus Christ as the high priest is always able. Always able. If you compare that to the Aaronic priesthood, thinking specifically of of Eli, rather. At the end of his life, his eyes were dim, the Bible says. He could barely see. At the very end of his life, he gets some bad news. As an old man can, can barely even get around, he's so feeble when he hears the bad news, his heart gives out, he lurches back, and he falls backwards, and the Bible says he breaks his neck. His ability wanes as his life grows short. As the end comes for him, he loses his ability to do what he needed to do. Even the fact that he couldn't see. How was he to make sacrifices without cutting his hand off? His eyes were dim. 
His ability waned. And yet with Christ, his ability will never go away. His ability will always be there. He'll always be able to save. But he's also unchanging in his morality. He's always pure. Again, if we contrast Jesus Christ, his work as high priest with those of Eli's sons. Eli's sons working there in the temple, in the tabernacle. One of them likely to take Eli's place at some point in time, but found to be evil, found to be corrupt. Contrast that with Jesus Christ. He is always pure. We always have a high priest who is, his, experiences much of what we've experienced, but he's untainted. He's never sinned. He's never fallen. He's never given in to temptation. He's unchanging in ability. He's unchanging in morality, and he's unchanging in vitality. He is always living. Think of Aaron, the first high priest there of the Jews as the exit Egypt. Speckled life as a high priest, but that's not the point here. The point is that he died in front of the people. He died in front of the people. God literally allowed him to die so that all of the congregation of Israel could see his weakness. Not to make a mock of him, but to demonstrate that that high priest that had, who had served for the most part faithfully, that he would die. Jesus Christ, he is always living. He's always able and he is always saving And again, remember that he saves not from the uttermost, but to the uttermost. Comprehensively, he is able to save. Jesus, his resurrection is a confirmation that his priesthood is not temporary. As you consider his life, his uh, his unchanging in vitality. He's always living. You see, Jesus wasn't the high priest when he was born in the manger. As we peer into the manger scene, we see this high priest who was born, he was a high priest long before. He was a high priest forever. And now this high priest, God, now incarnate, ever lives. His resurrection is a confirmation that he is a priest forever. And this should bring us as Christians to a place of assurance, to a place of confidence. He ever lives to make intercession for us. It's not that the old system was unable to bring definite assurance uh, to the believer, but death could not hold Jesus. And he was raised from the dead. He he ascended on high, and now he lives to intercede. And so his priesthood, unlike the old covenant priesthood, was temporary. He, his, is permanent. In the new covenant, we make our way once to Calvary. And we see the knife of the Father, and it's plunged into the Son who dies for us once and for all. We don't need to see a sacrifice repeated year after year after year. We see a sacrifice which was so successful that it, it covered all of our sins. But not just that, it covered all the sins of all of those who would believe in Christ, both now and forever. Because of Jesus' work, because of his sacrifice, we have a final assurance of hope. And that's what the, one, one of the large points of the book of Hebrews. He's calling 
Jewish believers to see that they do not need another sacrifice. That nothing needs to be added to the work of Christ in order to bring us assurance. It's already been given to us. We need nothing more. That doesn't just apply to Judaism. It doesn't just apply to sacrificial systems. It applies to good works as well. There's nothing that we can add to the work of Christ. And we need to be assured, we can be assured of that. So our heritage, godly as it may be, our church attendance, or whatever we want to add and to shore up, it's unnecessary. Not in the area of forgiveness of sins. It's unnecessary in the area of assurance. We know that we can be accepted. We don't have to worry anymore about it. Year after year, no, it's been settled once and for all. His sacrifice is permanent. If we will turn from our sin and ask for forgiveness, believing that Jesus' work and his blood covers our sin, we can be saved. Oftentimes when a Christian is struggling with assurance of salvation, we, we tend to look inward at our own faith and we consider, is my faith real? Is it sincere? Is it legit? That's not a bad idea to look inward and to consider your own faith, but I would encourage you this morning to look outward as well. Even more importantly, and not around, but to the cross. You see, we can look to our own faith and and, and search it out, and we should, but ultimately, if we want assurance, we look to the cross. We receive assurance there. The fact that Jesus has mediated for us, his resurrection and his ascension even, there's nothing more assuring than those things. So how successful was Jesus? how, How was he successful? He ever lives. That's why. That's how he's successful. Because he lives, the song says. We can face tomorrow. We can have assurance because he lives. The last question that we'll look at this morning is, who does he save? Again, we'll look at verse 25. There at the end it says, He is able to save those who draw near to God through him. Let's just work through that quickly. Those, that first word and the phrase that we're looking at. uh, Those. There's no limitation here. It's those. There's no qualifier it doesn't say uh, a certain denomination. It doesn't say somebody that's independent or Episcopalian or, or Baptist. Or, it doesn't say those. It says anybody, those who draw near to God. It simply says those. It doesn't matter your creed, your rank, your social status, your class. Those who come to Christ, they will be saved. It doesn't matter your position before man, whatever people consider you to be or think of you denomination that you've associated yourself with in the past or, or even currently it transcends all those things. It's an open invitation. Those, the next, uh, next word there, draw near. It literally means to, to come or approach while facing forward. To come or approach while facing forward. And it, is, it describes the approach in or entry into a, a deity's presence. The same word was used to describe priests uh, as they would uh, uh, worship Jehovah, as they would come into, and, and, into his presence and perform priestly duties. It's the same word. But in the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, the Greek version, uh, this word has been used 
to talk about priests doing their duties in the temple or in the tabernacle. But what's interesting is that this exact same word is used in the New Testament of believers, even here now. Those who draw near. Seven uses in the New Testament of drawing near refer to believers possessing this privilege to be able to draw near to God. This is, this is the most beautiful part of this entire passage. This is the picture. Year after year, believers would ascend to the city of Jerusalem with sacrifice in hand. They would come to the temple, and a priest would sacrifice that animal for that whole family. And once a year, the high priest would enter into the inner room of the temple, the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat. And this room was made uh, or thought of to be the very abode of God, where his presence rested. Only one man was able to enter in, the high priest. No, no one else. And he was in the tabernacle, in the temple. If you were to enter that room, it would be be instant death. There was no access for you. You wouldn't even be allowed to get in there. Even if you did, you'd have to pass through this great curtain that the the high priest would have to pass through. Anyway, the high priest, he would intercede on your behalf. He would go into the presence of God on your behalf. And this is what the Jews knew. And this this way, though, became obsolete when Jesus came. And, that, and that's why the Holy Spirit of God gave us this book to demonstrate that we can now draw near. You see, now we draw near to God, but we don't look to a new sacrifice. We don't look to another high priest. We look to the final sacrifice performed by the final high priest. And so practically speaking, how do we draw near to God? <clears throat> well, we do it just like they did in the Old Testament. We recognize our sin before a holy God. We consider his law that we have broken and how we have fallen short. We consider his law and and how we've constantly and regularly chosen other and sinned against it, sinned against God. We think of then the provision that Jesus has made, though, on the cross for us, that he was our sacrifice, how he shed his blood for the sins of those who would believe. And with confidence in the completed work of Jesus Christ, we enter the holy place, leaving behind all that we had previously chased and desired, and we walk through the very path that Jesus walks. We enter into the holy of holies through Christ himself. One preacher warned that there's, there's no such thing as bringing half of yourselves to God and leaving the other half away. He says, if a man has come here this morning, he supposes that he's brought his whole self with him. You can't leave half of yourself somewhere else. And so the idea is, how do we draw near to God? Well, we all together... With our whole being, we come into the very presence of God. We seek His presence. And if you don't come holy, you've not come to God at all. So the call for us this morning as we consider the work of the high priest is that we would draw near through Him, through the work of Christ. And what does that look like practically? Well, I, I think of the Church of England's prayer book. There's a, there's a, a prayer in there, and it's a beautiful prayer. I'll, I'll read it for you this morning. This is a collective prayer that the church would pray together. It's this. We have erred and strayed away like lost sheep. We have done those things which we ought not to have done. And we have left undone those things which we have ought to done. And there is no health in us. This is the confession. This is a confession. This is a very act. And speaking things like this is the very act of drawing near to God. We have erred. 
and we've strayed away like lost sheep, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and we have left undone those things which we have ought to done, and there is no health in us. And that confession is an example of drawing near to God. Seeing the very work of of Christ on the cross, confessing your sin before him and counting, reaching for that blood to cover your sins. Hagerstown Church, this is our confession. This is our request this morning. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, if, if you're not a Christian, I encourage you to like me, like the Apostle Paul, and like so many here this morning, to confess your sins. As you look into that manger and you see that baby, don't see a baby, see a high priest who is able to save you from your sins. And so having this as our confession, may we as a church ascend the hill. May we draw nigh to God and come to the Father, facing forward, enter into the Holy of Holies on the heels of our high priest who tore the veil and gave us access once again to God the Father. May that be our prayer this morning. I want to end with a story this morning. It's of a young soldier who heard that his father and his brothers had died in battle. Upon hearing the news, he realizes that his mother and younger siblings will suffer greatly if he is not able to return home and harvest the crops. If he's not able to do that, they'll all be lost and life will be immensely hard. And so the young man requests leave from his superiors, but he's denied. And so he goes to the very White House seeking an audience with the president himself. And sadly, on the day that he comes, the president is not able to make any appointments. And so helpless and despondent, he he walks away from the White House. And he sits down on a park bench. He slumps over, head in hand, not knowing what move to make. A moment later, he feels a tug on his sleeve, and at the request of a young boy, he hears, What's the matter, mister? A soldier mindlessly begins to blather the whole predicament to the boy. He tells him everything that's on his heart without restraint. He recognizes that this boy can't help him, but he goes on. And when he's finished, the boy jumps to his feet, and he insists that this man follow him, this soldier follow him. And so together, the two walk in the side entrance of the yard, into the side entrance of the White House and down the hallway into the very office of the president. You see, this young boy's name was Tad and his father's name was Aid. Through the son, the soldier had access to the father. So who does he save? Who does Jesus save? Those who draw near to the Father, through Jesus the Son, He is the High Priest. He gives us access to the Father once again. So church, Jesus is the only one who is able to intercede perfectly and perpetually as our High Priest. And the offer, the, the call for you, us this morning is to draw near to God the Father through Him. Together this morning, we look into the manger and we rejoice at the promised birth of the high priest. Joy has dawned. The sounds of wonder fill the sky with the songs of angels as the mighty prince of life shelters in a stable. Hands that set each star in place shaped the earth in darkness, 
Cling now to a mother's breast, vulnerable and helpless. Shepherds bow before the Lamb, gazing at the glory. Gifts from men in distant lands prophesy the story. Gold, a king is born today. Incense, God is with us. Myrrh, his death will make a way. And by his blood, he'll win us. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice this morning in the work of your Son. As we consider the promise of his birth long ago. And even in that promise, we see the faith of the priests through the ages as they would make sacrifices. Which was a shadow of the great high priest who was to come. And even now he has. And in his coming, he has made a way for us to enter into your very presence. And by his name and through his life, we approach you this morning. Father, we confess our sins. We've sinned against you. We've broken your law willingly this week. And as your people, we confess that. Because of the sacrifice that Jesus offered once and sat down, we enter into your presence confidently. But Father, if there's not a one this morning, if there is a one who cannot claim that testimony, Father, we pray this morning that they would repent of their sins, that they would see the hope of Christ and his work as a mediator and as a high priest. That they would trust his sacrifice. That they would turn from their sins and all that they had once held. And they would trust you and worship you. God, this is our prayer this morning. Jesus, we thank you for your work. Spirit, we pray that you'd keep us. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. In some denominations,